You are now listening to the MS podcast by Sanofi Genzyme. In this podcast, the brain takes center stage when Ole Petteriella, best-selling author and professional speaker, explores the different dimensions of MS and brain health through conversations with international specialists within neuroscience, psychology and physical activity. What happens when our cognitive ability is challenged? which is the case for many people living with MS. A lot of research has been conducted about the cognitive profile of MS patients in recent years, but we still have a long way to go, both in terms of speaking openly about the cognitive effects in MS and implementing it on a regular basis in clinical practice. To shed some much-needed light on the different aspects of cognitive decline, we have the pleasure of having Hanneke Hulst from the MS Center Amsterdam with us in the studio. Hanneke is an expert in the field of cognitive decline in MS, known for using state-of-the-art neuroimaging techniques in the search of the underlying mechanisms of cognitive impairment in MS. Welcome, Hanneke. Good morning. Good morning. Can you first of all briefly tell us about what cognition really is? Yeah, it's good that you ask, because cognition is more or less an umbrella term, uh, including a lot of different functions. So you can think of information processing speed, so how fast you actually get to know new information, uh, memory function, executive function like planning and organizing. Uh, So it's a quite broad spectrum of things that we need uh, for daily life functioning or actually abilities for thinking, basically. Great. I'm very glad you uh, explained a little bit to us about what cognitive function really is, because it is a term we use quite a lot. And at least my understanding is that quite a few people don't know exactly what the term entails, maybe especially patients. So it's nice to get some concrete examples. Can you say something about the cognitive profile of patients with MS, if there is such a profile? Yeah, I think there, um, there there are some specifics about cognitive impairment in multiple sclerosis. So what we see, first of all, is that we're talking about subtle changes in cognitive functioning. So if you compare it, for example, to Alzheimer's disease, where uh, memory function is like severely impaired in patients with MS, it's all about more subtle changes. And it's usually start with a reduced processing speed. So it takes more time to learn new information. So it's also usually referred to as like cognitive slowing. And then we see memory problems as quite often uh, early in the disease stages, while, for example, problems with executive functioning more later in the disease uh, phases. So you see it starts with with, uh, cognitive slowing and memory problems. And then when the disease progresses, you see more cognitive domains getting affected. So it has I, I don't know if it's a, a real profile, but you do have some characteristics that, that are known for being uh, related to MS. Can you say something about how early in the disease process these symptoms appear generally? Yeah, that's a, that's a very good question and a very hard question to answer because uh, we see actually cognitive impairment in all phases of the disease. So it can in, in rare cases, it's, it might be even the first symptom of the disease. But I think generally, if the disease progresses into secondary progressive or the primary progressive disease types, you see more often cognitive impairment, but that doesn't mean uh, that you're not seeing it in people with relapsing remitting MS. So basically, you see it happening in around 40 to 70% of the patients. So it's a very broad range 
which also demonstrates that we we haven't really did very careful research on the actual numbers, but it happens often. And I tend to say in all all disease courses, basically. And obviously, cognitive impairment is not specific for MS. It's influenced by many different factors. And maybe that makes it a little bit more difficult as well. Yeah, it's a very complicated symptom. And it's exactly as you say. So it is, uh, you have cognitive problems, but it is heavily related on how well you slept, how fatigued you are, if it depends on your mood. Uh, So those are all still internal factors, but then it's also dependent on what kind of social situation you're in, uh, what kind of relationships do you have. That can all have influence also in healthy people on how their cognitive performance is. But, But basically in MS, this becomes more important and also very important to try to disentangle what causes in that particular patient the cognitive deficits. If it's related to a mood problem, then it would be better to focus on improving the mood first. And then there is also a high chance that you will see that the cognition actually improves with improving mood. To most people, maybe especially patients, uh, MS is seen as primarily a, a disease of motor function. Is it um, undercommunicated that cognitive functions are quite often affected in MS? I think it is. And I think it actually also depends or, or is related to the fact that we're talking about subtle changes. So it's not that obvious where it comes from. So on the patient side, I think usually uh, patients are looking for external reasons or as, as an explanation for why their cognition is not going so well. So having uh, young children and, and and not like a full night's sleep that might have actually influenced your cognition or having a high demanding job uh, is usually sort of the cause for uh, cognitive impairment, while it can also be from the disease itself. So I think patients on the one hand think often that it is, is different reasons for their uh, cognitive problems. And at the other hand, I think for uh, neurologists, it's a very difficult problem as well It's not always part of the discussion when patients visit their neurologist, also because physical symptoms are obviously more visible and therefore often the topic of conversation during a consultation with the neurologist, sort of making cognitive impairment in the second row, placing it there, while it actually should deserve more attention, I think. I agree. I have a few patients myself in general practice with MS and they talk very openly about their physical symptoms, motor dysfunction, etc. But some of them feel a little bit embarrassed to talk about the cognitive dysfunction they're experiencing. Is there a stigma related to this? So I wouldn't know if I would call it a stigma. I think it is a loaded topic for sure. And also it touches more than just cognition. So I have this one patient that I've seen quite often in for research projects. And she was working in as a journalist, so she had to be fast in her thinking, uh, picking up uh, clues and, and being like uh, really on top of her game. And then uh, she suffered actually from uh, impaired processing speed and that made her also unable to do her job as a journalist. And actually she said it influences more than just that. So I'm not able to do my job, but also in my social life, I became slower and a more quiet person. While I was used to be an outgoing extrovert, I sort of yeah more turned into an introvert 
person that was unable to deal with a lot of uh, influences from outside. And also, she said, I, I actually think that I pick a, a different life partner now than when you would have asked me 10 years ago. So I think in terms of, of stigma or loneliness of the topic, um, that it also touches upon someone's identity. So if your cognition is not going smoothly or not continuously as, as you're used to have it, it actually can lead to being a different person. And that is obviously, I think, a tough thing to talk about as a patient, but also for a neurologist. Yeah, so these things just not only affects cognitive distinct functions, but also you've, your feeling of self-identity, who you are. Yes, and also a, a, an example that she gave was like, uh, I don't really understand jokes anymore. While I was usually very good in understanding jokes and laughing about it, I sort of seem to take everything seriously, which makes me a different kind of person also to hang out with. And yeah, she was really worried about that. And obviously, yeah, I think cognition is, is a basic function, but it determines quite a bit of, of who you are as a person. Yeah, so these cognitive functions, you need them in your daily life and they also affect your identity, really. How does cognitive decline impact the quality of life for people with MS? Well, I think it is um, it is quite clear that it has a huge impact on people's life and also, for example, on being employed or, or, or participating in work. Obviously, MS causes a lot of physical symptoms, which can be reasons that people get unemployed, but also the cognitive profile and changes in how you can handle work is influenced by cognition. And then if you get unemployed while being an MS patient, usually very young in the prime of their lives, uh, this can have a huge impact on your quality of life if you're getting unemployed and having to refine your meaning of life, what usually people find in their jobs, but also how you participate in your family life. Uh, it's influenced by that. So it has a huge impact. And Usually not for the better, obviously. Sanofi Genzyme is a proud sponsor of the Global MS Brain Health Initiative, where the aim is to maximize lifelong brain health for people living with MS, creating a better future for everyone affected by the disease. The initiative calls for greater urgency at every stage from diagnosing, treating and managing MS. Time matters in MS. Read more about the initiative at msbrainhealth.org. So obviously it is important to, as early as possible, I would assume, to detect whether or not MS patients have uh, symptoms of cognitive decline. How good are we at picking this up early in the clinic? I, I agree with you. It would be good to pick it up early. At the same time, you could wonder, well, if if you pick it up early, then you would also like to have like a billion options to treat it. And I think that is the counterpart that makes it sometimes hard because we do have some interventions that, that actually relieve the cognitive problems, but still there is not the cure for cognitive deficits. But in terms of detecting it, I think we're not very good at it. I think one of the things we could do is to make it more like a standard question for every neurologist to ask, like we're asking for physical uh, complaints, also asking for cognitive complaints. I think it can be better if we teach our patients better to actually mention it, even though they might think it's because if they have this high dependent job or if they have family to actually make it point of the discussion. 
but also I think what we what could benefit is that we have more structural assessments of cognition in a more standard way. So I think the International MS and Cognition Society two years ago published a paper saying that if patients get diagnosed with MS, it might be good to actually have them tested for their cognitive performance as a screener. So even if there are no complaints, just have three tests as a screening or even one if you if you cannot do three and have that set as a baseline measurement. So once patients actually have complaints that you can also look back, like how was it when you were diagnosed? And that is one of their uh, advices. And then there are other advices to actually do a yearly monitoring of cognition like we do for the physical functions. And this is not talking about like a, a very expanded neuropsychological evaluation. We're talking about a screening, 50 minute test battery, just to get a little bit of a grasp of what how people are doing on a cognitive level. Yeah, to me, it seems like this has a lot to do about awareness in the clinical um, community because screening of cognitive function is something we do routinely for other diseases, for instance, dementia. So it wouldn't seem to be a very hard practical issue to uh, put into the uh, follow-up of these patients. Yeah, I think there are two things. There's one thing, I guess, that not all patients with MS do get cognitive complaints. So on the one hand, if you do test patients on a regular basis and 50% will never develop a cognitive impairment, then is it necessary to burden them with these tests all the time? I think that is at least something I hear from my colleagues working in the clinical setting. On the other hand, you do still, for most of these these tests, we do still need qualified uh, personnel, uh, trained personnel to be able to assess the cognitive functions. And often there is time constraints and lack of these people to actually measure the cognitive functioning. Uh, So recently, me and my team, we actually worked on making a a test battery that people or patients can perform without having a test leader present so that they were actually tested. So on an iPad uh, in a quiet room, but not having trained personal necessary for that job. And what you see there is that it actually was quite reliable if you compared it to the uh, paper and pencil tests. So in that sense it actually seems to work quite well. So we have developed the iPad and this this digital testing. And the next step would be to implement this really in a clinical care setting to see how that helps neurologists as well. So this is the multiple screener app you're talking about? Yes, this is the multiple screener app. And is this routinely used uh, today? So no, we, we developed it um, and it, it, it consists of three tests. It's a test for verbal memory, visuospatial memory and processing speed. So we have now tested the reliability and the comparability with cognitive or the paper and pencil tests. And now we have to implement it in the clinical care. Uh, hopefully it will get used on a, in every center uh, and it will actually help clinical care become more common for cognitive problems in MS. So cognitive decline is quite common in MS. We would like to detect it early and follow up closely. But what can we do about the cognitive decline in MS patients? Yeah, so I think uh, this is a very, very important question. And I get this question all the time from patients as well. And I think uh, next to the strategy training that we actually uh, give to patients, uh, it is even more important as a step before that to actually talk to patients about 
cognitive problems that can occur uh, with MS and not only to patients, but also with their family members or their caregivers. Because I think what you usually see is that if patients don't recognize the cognitive problems as part of their MS, there is a lot of confusion also in, in families that, that, for example, a person is thinking that their parents are not or that their mother is not interested in their school performance while well, actually she asks over and over again because she forgets because of the MS. So it's important to not only talk about patients, but also include the family and the close people uh, to actually explain what effects cognitive impairment can have on a person's functioning. So we have some tools that we can use to improve function. But what about the future? You talked about, yeah, we can improve function, but the damage to the brain is still there affecting the cognitive functions. Can we get the brain up and running again? Is this science fiction or is it possible to repair? Well, I think it's the greatest challenge that uh, cognitive researchers in, in the cognitive rehabilitation fields are breaking their brains about. Because I think ideally you would like to get the brain up and running again. And whether or not this is possible, I can't answer today. But I think there are signs that... Uh, for some people, uh, cognitive training to really retrain the brain actually works. So we recently did a cognitive rehabilitation study ourselves uh, using an attention training program. And uh, it's a computerized training. And if you look on a group level, you see that there is a mild to moderate effect of the training on neuropsychological test score, so on an objective outcome measure. And mild to moderate effects are not great. So usually what you would do is you would say, okay, this is this is of marginal interest. But I think uh, in the next step, we actually looked at who are the patients that benefited really from this. And that was actually driven by an anecdote from one of our patients participating in this program. So he was working as a cook and he had trouble with attention. So he said, if I have to prepare different meals and I see all the orders hanging in front of me. I have to look back and forth all the time to prepare their meals. And it takes me a lot of time and I don't get it done. And then after this seven week training program, he said, I really felt better. So I only had to look once. I saw all the different menus that I had to prepare and I was able to actually do it again. And I was like, this is interesting because on a group level, this training doesn't seem to have done a lot, but this patient is actually telling me a very enthusiastic story. So is a, shouldn't we perhaps try to look for if there were more patients that actually had this experience that really improved more than others? And then we saw that in 38% of our sample, the subjects actually did improve uh, quite substantially. And we actually looked into their brains on brain MRI uh, to see if what the difference were between patients that were doing great versus patients that were not actually improving. And they didn't differ on age, on sex, on educational level. Their brain volume didn't change. There was no change difference in lesion volume. Uh, there was no difference in baseline cognition. But the only thing that was different between these groups was how the brain network looked like before we started the intervention. And that means that the people that responded to the training, the responders, they actually had a brain network that resembled that of healthy people, while the non-responders were deviating already from the healthy situation. So 
in terms of intervening, uh, this this could indicate that perhaps we, rather than looking for restoration of already damaged functions, we should try to make the brain more resilient towards pathology and to maintain a healthy network functioning. Perhaps that would be the best way to go. And that's at least what we in Amsterdam are now trying to explore. If you can make people more resilient towards pathology in the future. So by strengthening their brain rather than to try to fix it once it's damaged. That's very exciting. Have you looked at uh, some interventions that have been shown, at least in animal models, to affect brain structure? I'm talking, for instance, about physical exercise that we have seen can stimulate neurogenesis in the hippocampus, uh, obviously a vital area for cognitive function. Yeah, actually we have. So in collaboration with uh, the group of Peter Feiss in uh, in Belgium, uh, we investigated brain networks in uh, people that actually went through a running intervention. So they uh, worked for three months in a row to be able to run five kilometers uh, without stopping. And I do realize, obviously, that this is just for a subset of the patients that we can do this because there will be a lot of patients that cannot do running. But for the ones that were able to do it, uh, we saw that in the people that were running, their visuospatial memory improved. So this is really their memory for navigation, so where in space you are. But also, and I think that was really interesting, is that, and we, we focused primarily on the hippocampus because exactly what you say uh, from animal models, we know that exercising is influencing the hippocampus greatly. And what we saw is that after this running intervention, um, campus was better embedded in one particular brain network of the brain, the default mode network, which is our basic brain network that is always on. And the hippocampus got a more prominent position in this default mode network after this running intervention. So you do see that something changes, but we obviously in three months time, you don't see changes in brain volume of the hippocampus or uh, that obviously is sort of a too short time period. But we do see changes that hints towards uh, changes in brain network connectivity related to a cognitive uh, task. That still leaves us, though, with the question like how well do patients actually feel in daily life? Did it really improve their daily life functioning? So I think even if the cognitive rehab studies can demonstrate that you can improve memory function or that you can make the brain more resilient towards pathology, one of the questions that we don't really touch upon is how ecological valid our interventions are. So what does it really mean for a person uh, in daily life and how did their day-to-day life functioning really improve? And I think that is really the next step that we have to start making to figure out uh, and improve also next to the cognitive test scores. So it sounds a little bit like the old cliche, more research is needed, is valid here. It's valid here. I think we're we're actually on a good strike. And uh, when I started 12 and a half years ago in MS research, there was no attention for cognition. And uh, although we still say we need more attention, there has been a lot of change for the better in the last year. So people are talking about it more often. If you look at publications, they have increased non-linearly. And yes, we have started looking into cognitive rehabilitation methods. So there is a lot of gain in the last 12 and a half years. But yes, to optimize and to really move towards 
the patient perspective and the patient's life, we still need to make that final step. And yet, therefore, we need more research, as always. To round off this very exciting talk, Hanneke, could you give us a couple of key takeaway messages for the clinicians out there watching, listening, when it comes to how to deal with cognitive function in the clinical world? Yes, I can I can definitely give some uh, take-home messages. I think first and most foremost, it's important to make cognitive impairment a topic of your of discussion. So be open about it and uh, and ask your patient actively how their cognition is. And then perhaps in a more, uh, not saying how is your cognition going, but really like, do you have trouble with information processing or does it take you more time to learn new things? Do you forget things to make it more concrete? That's one thing. The other thing is to be aware that even though we don't have the solution for cognitive impairment, we do have strategy training. And although it seems like boldly saying, learning tips and tricks, it actually can improve the quality of life of patients tremendously. So it is an option that we really have and should take seriously. And then finally, I think as a community of clinicians and scientists and patients all together, I would really would like to invite people to think about, is there a way that we can actually make the MS brain more resilient towards uh, pathology and as such more resilient towards cognitive impairment? How would we then design such an intervention? So that is really an, an invitation for the field to contact me with ideas to, to work it out for being able to make the next steps. Well, thank you very much, Anneke, for a very interesting talk about a very important topic. Thank you. Thank you for having me here. Thank you for listening to the MS podcast by Sanofi Genzyme. 